Hello and welcome to the FT Advisor podcast, the new weekly podcast series brought to you by FT Advisor. Each week, we'll be joined by guests from the industry to discuss the week in news and the most pressing issues of the day. I'm David Thorpe, reporter at FT Advisor. This episode of the podcast discusses the opportunities in the US equity market. Today's podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. The US equity market has hit several new highs in the past year as the dominant theme of technological change wrestles with sluggish economic growth. Joining me today to explore the opportunities in US equities are T. Rowe Price, US equity product specialists Julian Cook and Eric Papesh and Nathan Sweeney, multi-asset fund manager at Arcatas. Good morning to you both and thank you for joining me. Although the US equity market has generally performed strongly, in recent years and indeed hit numerous record highs. The question needs to be asked, is this simply a function of where we are in the cycle or are there deeper secular factors at play and how concerned should we be about overall valuations? Nathan, if we start with you, how do you uh, how, how do you view the US at the moment? Sure, you know, so if you think about it, we've had extremely big improvements in technology over the last decade. Uh, the iPhone is obviously a classic example of this. And this has helped the market to reach new highs over the years. But we also have to take into consideration that central banks have been extremely supportive over the last couple of years. And this has also played its part in helping equity markets to kind of uh, hit those new highs that we've seen over the last uh, few years and kind of repeatedly hitting those levels. But you mentioned valuations. And this is a concern for investors at this point in the cycle, because if we look at valuations, they look extremely expensive relative to history. But I suppose one uh, good point to take away from the movement we've seen in the last few weeks is that valuations are less of a concern today than they were a few weeks ago, because we have had a dramatic pullback in markets. Indeed. Eric, how, how, do, you, how do you look at the, the, the market now, your your products have, have obviously got quite a lot of uh, exposure to those secular themes, but where do valuations c- come into it? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, conversations we're having with clients, valuations are pretty frequently cited as a point of concern. Uh, and, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't say by, by any, any, uh, any measure that, you know, valuations at the broad U.S. equity level today are compelling, right, just in and of themselves. Uh, so on a price to forward earnings multiple, roughly 18 to 19 times, um, which is expensive compared to where the market has traded over most of the last 15 or 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think I think if you look across different um, parts of global capital markets, that same argument would would hold, or that same same case would would be would be true. So most. Most segments of capital markets globally are are rich versus where they've traded over the last twenty years. So the the question, uh, to some extent, is you know, valuations relative to what, right? So, um, you know, if if you if you compare the the dividends currently, the dividend yield on the S and P five hundred today, it's actually a hundred basis points higher than what you're you're seeing on the ten year Treasury. So the last time that gap was as wide as as it is today was in December of two thousand eight. So um, you know, not all valuation measures give you the same conclusion. Mm-hmm. And then I'd also add just within the market, right, the U.S. equity market is a is an exceptionally broad market index. 
Uh, so obviously there are there are pockets of the market we think, just from a valuation perspective, are you know more or less compelling at any, any given point in time. Yeah, and just on, on that point on valuations, if you look at the market, you can see that there's no sector that is extremely expensive relative to the market. There are some areas that obviously are more expensive, but you know as you mentioned, there's lots of uh, sectors, particularly value sectors, yeah. which offer a lot uh, more attractive valuations when you compare it to the S&P 500 average. That's absolutely absolutely right. I mean, you know, that's that's you mentioned financials, that's been a, a pretty controversial area for most of the last 5 or 6 7 years really coming out of the global financial crisis. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of, you know, controversy around financials and and you're seeing that reflected today still uh, with the, the, the valuations that are are relatively cheap versus the broader market. Thank you. Uh, Julian, um, to what extent is is valuation versus those uh, secular trends that we're, we're seeing, whether they're technology, as Nathan mentioned, um, different ways people shop, demographics. There's there's all sorts of sort of big picture things over there. And then you've got valuations over here. To, how, how do you sort of weigh those up against each other in your in your products? Yeah, I think um, so. I, so I look after um, you know, the growth portfolios at T-Rail Price. So I have, a, I guess, a certain kind of view on this. Um, and I think what we've seen in terms of... Um, these companies have been you know, highly disruptive. They've, I guess, first and foremost, they've delivered a tremendous amount of free cash flow. So it, it's not for no reason that these stocks have done well. They've delivered, you know, improving you know, free cash flow margins and, and uh, you know, very decent performances fundamentally. Um, and and I'd say maybe paradoxically to what people would presume, you know, these some of these big platform companies are actually cheaper today than they were a year ago. Uh, they continue to compound growth at very very decent levels. Um, and if anything, they're getting cheaper because the stocks aren't quite going up as fast as their free cash flow is going up. Because when I speak to investors and clients, they they tend to have this assumption that tech looks expensive. Um, but given um, some of these secular changes and the the secular what, we, what we'd regard secular growth companies, some of these advantages they're 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 garnering is is resulting in you know, tremendous free cash flow, which makes these companies look actually quite attractive on a on a long term valuation perspective. But is it reasonable to expect that while those secular themes may be long term, may be here to stay, uh, there will be periods where in future they will be out of favour and the mar- more traditional, in inverted commas, areas of the market will, will perform better than them? Yeah, I think I think it's fair to say we're not going to have it all one way. Um, I think there'll be certainly moments in time when you get idiosyncratic risk, which, you know, coronavirus is obviously here and here and now. That's something we'd regard as being idiosyncratic risk, which has caused you know, markets to pull back. Also, um, I guess on the on the expectation or hope that you get a, come some kind of you know, cyclical recovery, then then these uh, secular growth companies will take a back seat to that kind of optimism. Now, if we think we've got the right kind of um, you know, secular growth sort of themes in place, you know, those will have duration over you know three five year timeframes. Um, so I think we we'll, we win by being patient, um, but we can certainly get. Uh, overtaken uh, over an, over a quarter, over a half year, uh, whilst we're on that sort of three five year journey. Eric, if uh, if Julian is the is the growth guy, you must be the value guy, right? That's how these things work. Um, as a value guy, how do you look at these um, these secular um, themes in 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 the market? Will there be a, a catalyst um, that we can sort of understand? J- Julian mentioned sort of coronavirus, which is completely idiosyncratic risk. But are there are things in the weeds that could that could cause a flip around and and maybe mean that those um, financials, as you mentioned in your previous answer, have their day in the sun? Yeah, I, I think I think absolutely. Uh, 
you know, we, we try to make the case that most investors should should generally have a pretty balanced exposure to the broad U.S. equity market. So, um, you know, the expectation being that growth and value, right, as they're, as they're typically defined, will will most likely continue to alternate leadership, right? Uh, and so having that balanced exposure, right, should result in a, in a pretty good long-term result for, for investors. Um, in terms of, of of what would help, you know, traditional value segments of the market, higher rates would be one thing. Obviously, financials is a big part of most value portfolios and, you know, a steeper yield curve, a higher interest rate environment would go a long way in, in driving better earnings growth. You know, the thing to remember, however, is that a lot of, you know, financial companies have materially changed their businesses over the last 10 years to really adapt to kind of the new normal, right? The lower level of interest rates we've we've been in. So um, that's one factor to consider. You know, inflationary pressures, right? Higher levels of inflation would probably be supportive for traditional value uh, portfolios that tend to have more exposure to commodities and energy-related companies. So those those would be, you know, some tailwinds just for, for the overall value style at a high level. You know, we we try to we try to uh, really take a longer term view on the opportunities that companies have got to grow earnings and free cash flow. And so, you know, if you if you really if you really know the company well and the value of the assets, you can you can you can estimate the value of the assets, um, and you know what the strategy of the management teams are with a longer term orientation. You can. You can take advantage of kind of shorter term periods of, of of maybe instances when the companies are not meeting kind of consensus expectations. Maybe it's a it's a heavy investment year for the company, right? It, that is setting them up for more attractive longer term growth, right? But if if the short term kind of focus is, of the market is on you know near term uh, results, and you understand why the company is making those investments near term. You know, you can take advantage of that that negative sentiment, uh, and 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 increase the exposure that you've got in those select investments, uh, with the expectation that over time those will be the right decisions. Nathan, as a as a multi asset guy, as an asset mm-hmm. allocator, I guess you know you could have had a you could have had an easy life over the last decade and played a lot more golf by just uh, maybe buying buying U.S. growth portfolio and going home, right? But um, as an asset allocator, is that what you do? Or how, how do you do the balance? How do you construct a portfolio that uh, takes into account what both Julian and Eric uh, said and all the wider trends in the market? How do you make it diversified? Yeah, so, you know, you, you mentioned the word there, diversification, and, that you know, that's key for us because we don't know when markets are going to change. So if we look at growth, it's definitely been a winner over the last decade, but you definitely have seen instances where value has rebounded. And when it does, it tends to rebound quite strongly. So if you look at particularly August and September of last year, you saw a very sharp value rally and you saw growth sell off aggressively. Um, And a lot of this is linked to expectations about growth. So we know that we're in a very low growth environment. We know that's probably likely to persist. But what is changing at this moment in time is there are a lot of calls for fiscal stimulus. And if we see big spend on infrastructure, you know, that could lead to a rebound in value. It will definitely lead to higher demand for materials, for energy, construction material, could lead to inflation. So even though we've had 10 years of growth, we are wary of the fact that when value pops, it really does, you know, kind of 
hit performance quite quickly over a short period of time. So from that perspective, we will have biases in portfolios. So we are biased towards growth, but we have value managers in there that we like. And when the time is right, we'll increase our allocation to value. Julian, do you think there's a risk that the market is overstating the the impact or the time frame in terms of negativity towards these companies that are seen to be the wrong side of the technological change. I'm thinking of, for example, automakers. Uh, some of the guys that I talk to that are very bullish on electric cars will tell you that, you know, automakers are going to zero like next week. What are the valuations of those things like? Do you think maybe it's the pessimism is too extreme? Yeah, I'll take half a step back and then I'll address automakers uh, specifically. Um, I think when we look at the U.S. market, both from a growth and a value perspective, uh, we we identify um, individual companies and then aggregate them up into sectors where we think those companies can face secular challenge. Uh, that can be secular challenge, uh, whether regardless of whether it's a growth or a value company. There are some very good value companies who are secularly advantaged. So, um, you know, if we think about 30% of the S&P faces secular challenge. And so we would not invest in those companies, whether they were growth or value. So just to make that, I guess, that kind of point clear. I think as it relates to autos, um, you know, we don't own autos in a growth strategy, quite frankly. Uh, but I think the travails or the problems of something, I guess, in autos, you know, that kind of, you know, that's been, I guess, a, um, that's been almost like, looks like a slow motion car wreck, if you ex- excuse the pun. Um, you know, they've faced, you know, very low margins. Uh, they've faced increasing competition from elsewhere in Asia. Um, they, they used to make money, I guess, on the financing part of the business, but that kind of ship has sailed since the global financial crisis. And they've kind of dalliance with, you know, levels, you know, varying levels of debt. So, and obviously they were bailed out during the financial crisis. So they were already, uh, I guess, in a challenged area. Now imagine the challenge it is now when you have to swap out every single mechanical engineer at a place like, like, a, I don't know, like any auto manufacturer, uh, and replace them with an electrical engineer. That doesn't happen overnight. So even with like a $12 billion R&D budget that somebody like Volkswagen can sort of throw at the problem, that's not a problem that gets solved overnight. Um, We have owned Tesla uh, in the past. We don't own it currently. Um, We owned that stock from sort of $50 to $350 when there's real uncertainty about whether you could make an electric car, whether you could make it at scale, whether you could make make a margin, whether you could make free cash flow. Um, and you know, from here, the, the, the question gets far more nuanced and you know, valuations to us at this moment in time you know, look you know, pretty extreme. So that there can certainly be sort of over-enthusiasm on the flip side on, on those companies that, you, that, you, that are deemed to be taking advantage. It really is down to those individual auto companies, and this is a, something we think about quite a lot at Tiro, is, is whether a company can actually pivot its business model to avoid the secular challenge that is facing it. And there's a, there's a, there's a, there are plenty of com- companies that have been facing secular challenge and you know, a melting ice cube of a business perspective. Um, and if they can pivot their business away from that successfully, they can do well. It really is down to the individual car manufacturers to be able to pivot successfully. So it doesn't mean that it's over. Um, I think there will be some you know, difficulty, but those that can, can properly pivot to the, you know, the new world order of electrical vehicles um, you know, should do well. Uh, bear in mind the the amount of R and D being spent on internal combustion engine technology today is zero, none, nothing. So they've really got to tear down the citadel and start again in this in this kind of new environment. And if you're a, if you're a disruptive company that doesn't have that legacy business, then I I think you're you are advantaged because you don't have to tear things down to rebuild them. You can just start building. 
Eric, from from your point of view, I mean, do, do you look at some of these these hated sectors, whether that's autos or I mean, banks are sometimes thrown in there. Do you look at some of those and go, you know what? I see the bad news. I I, I know that story, but the valuation just means I've got to be there. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I think I think to a large extent, that's that's why value works as kind of an investment uh, philosophy, right? We we try to. Uh, step into areas of controversy um, and and benefit as that controversy over time is is addressed and resolved right so controversy results in valuations that are compelling you know we take a longer term view on on upside opportunities right so understand what the true value of the assets are that the company controls what the strategy is of the management teams to address the controversy, and then we're patient, right, to to allow time to uh, to address those areas of concern. Um, you know, in in terms of, of 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 autos specifically, we don't have much in the way of autos currently. Financials certainly, we have we have large investments in names like Wells Fargo, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan would be would be other examples of of some financials that we've we've owned for you know several years in the portfolio. Um, you know. Names like 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 Wells Fargo in particular, you know, a lot of controversy around around the business for the last you know several years. Some of that is directly attributable to the business and actions that their employees have made in the past. Some of it is not right, such as just the general concern over the the level of interest rates, right? Uh, so, in a name like Wells Fargo, I'd, I'd highlight things that we think are more in control of the individual companies to, to, to drive earnings. Thank you, Nathan. I know you don't look at things on an individual stock mm-hmm. level, but uh, you mentioned um, in one of your previous answers that while well, you've got sort of bias towards towards growth mm-hmm. um, in the portfolio, you do have some uh, value exposure. Yeah. What what do you look for in 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 terms of uh, in terms of value uh, funds when you're when you're picking them? How how do you get that exposure? Yeah, so for us, obviously, that's you know looking at our process, and our process is very much focused on downside protection, upside capture. Um, you know, and we assess managers uh, looking at team process performance. So there's quite a number of things that we look at in coming to that decision, and there's quite a lot of work that goes into it. Um, but because value is out of favour from a portfolio construction perspective, it's quite a small component in portfolios today. But just you know, the question that you raised earlier, you know, talking about uh, autos and disruption generally, um, you know, the one thing I, I suppose that people need to remember is that change is constant. Um, and that it's not just disruption for auto companies, it's companies across various different sectors where you're seeing this change. And what will really drive big companies to change their strategy is obviously end consumer demands. And, you know, specifically for uh, autos, um, if we look at electric vehicle sales, they're actually quite small in comparison to combustion engines at this point in time. And if you look at Tesla, which, uh, you know, is in the limelight recently because of the share price movements, uh, they only sold 346,000 cars last year. So it's a very, very small number when you compare it to other automakers. But I did obviously pick up, and this was in the FT yesterday, uh, just talking about GM looking to spend 20 billion on electric vehicles. And they have actually claimed uh, that they have a battery uh, that can produce a car that can go from zero to 60 in three seconds and can travel, I think, up to uh, 400 miles without a charge, which is better than any current model for Tesla. So 
Change will happen for big companies. It's generally slower, but it's consumer habits that will drive that change over time. Julian, I guess when we look at all of these uncertainties and all of this disruption, there are there are two ways that one, one could do it. One could identify uh, stocks and companies, businesses that, that might be relatively immune from it. Um, an example that's often cited is uh, is ice cream. You know, whatever, there's no computer that's ever been made that's going to make ice cream taste less good, right? Um, so you can either buy the company that sells the ice cream and say, you know what, type doesn't really matter. Or you can buy the, the platform that the ice cream is sold on because that is what, what changes, right? Both of those types of uh, companies have done quite well. Some of the fast-moving consumer goods companies have had a good decade alongside some of the tech companies. As a as a growth investor, as a secular investor, how, how do you uh, how do you weigh up those those uh, conflict contrasting opportunities? Yeah, I think I think ultimately it comes down to valuation of those uh, different kind of um, different kinds of companies. Um, when Nathan mentioned earlier about I guess the rotation we saw last year. I guess we'd identify that rotation as being not so much a value rotation, but more rotation of sort of like stable growth companies, the one that you're describing, sort of like food and drink kind of companies. Um, so you have seen these like, I guess, slow growth, stable uh, earnings type companies, less cyclical earnings type companies actually get bid up quite you know, richly in valuation. And so I guess ultimately it's valuation that would drive our decision whether or not we'd like to invest there or not, both on, I guess, more from a, I guess more for a core or value perspective as opposed to a growth perspective. For us, the growth isn't, isn't high enough to, to be interesting. Um, so, so I'd say from a, from a growth perspective, you know, we, were, we, we are, I guess, uh, naturally um, predisposed to looking for, the, for companies that can grow pretty nicely. Now, if you told me that ice cream sales are going to grow, you know, on a, on a, cyclo- on a secular basis, then that would be interesting. Uh, I think everybody who eats ice cream at the moment eats ice cream. Uh, I'm not sure the total addressable market is necessarily something that is growing hugely. I think advocates for those companies <laughs> would, would, would say that what, what, would, what would change is that consumers in emerging markets will have more money to buy more expensive ice cream or more expensive alcohol, right? They used to drink like fire water and hooch and soon they'll drink very nice uh, whiskey of some kind or another. I think that's the theory that's put out there, right? Yeah, yeah, and I guess um, I guess from from a, from a U.S. equity perspective, I guess that those are those are sort of trends that we are we are less likely to take advantage of, quite honestly. Um, I think we'd we'd still be um, inclined in growth to look for the look for the companies which which we think can, on a secular basis, improve their position and grow free cash flows and grow their businesses, and and that would tend not to be the sort of the food and drink type companies, who who are largely dependent on price um, to drive growth. Uh, and I accept the point about you know the the, the possibility of um, you know more people in, on the planet drinking you know um, drinking certain types of fizzy drinks etc as being a good growth kind of a engine um, that just isn't quite the kind of growth rates we need to, to satisfy our appetite for, for buying for buying growth. Thank you, Eric. How how do you view uh, fast moving consumer good type companies? As Julian mentioned, they have been um, bid up quite a lot. But people who who bought them, you know, five years ago are probably quite happy they bought them. Maybe the guy who buys them today will be happy in five more years. Yeah, I mean, it just—I I think there's so much um, dispersion within a within a given industry or sector, right? You think about the, uh, you know, the beverages category of the last five or six, seven years, and you know, names like uh, like Anheuser Busch or InBev, right, have have seen pretty pretty difficult, uh, you know, times. A company like like. Um, Boston beer, right? Samuel Adams is is one of the brands in the states. You know, very uh, innovative, right? Uh, uh, very 
very engaged in in you know hard cider and hard seltzers and, and effectively adapting to consumer changing consumer preferences, right? Um, so, you know, I think it's it's hard to really make um, broad statements across every you know that are that are that are applicable or accurate for every company within a given industry, right? And I, and, and again, that's what we try to do. At Tiro is just from a bottom-up perspective, understand the opportunities for individual companies, and and sometimes, right, there are companies that are not, uh, not as negatively positioned as kind of the you know the the prevailing wisdom would 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 have you believe. Thank you, uh, Nathan. In over the last uh, over the last decade, I mean, as a as a as a fund picker, as a mm-hmm. reporter on funds, we you know we've seen a, a number of products, not just in U.S. equities, but but generally uh, grow their AUM uh, very significantly, and lots of them have been have been funds that are invested in those uh, kind of uh, fast moving consumer good or or uh, sta- you know stable growth companies rather mm-hmm. than fast moving. And then on the other side, you've got uh, funds with with a very big concentration on on secular growth and on on technology and themes. How 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 do you sort of un, unpack all of that when you're when you're picking um, mandates? Yeah, so I, I suppose the benefit for us as a multi manager is that uh, we can choose where to invest and, and we can move those investments around uh, over time or at any particular point in time. So for us, the first question is obviously uh, trying to assess where we are from an asset allocation perspective. Where are we in the cycle? And if you look today, we're obviously 11 years into an expansion. And you can see, looking at market volatility, that investors are generally concerned about where do we go next? Can we continue to see the rate of growth that has come through already? And will these companies that have been driving that growth, say Fang stocks as an example, continue to grow at the same rate? Um, so, you know, that, that is obviously one of the things we take into consideration. And we do believe at this point in time that uh, growth will continue to dominate because we are in this slow growth environment and central banks are obviously being extremely supportive to encourage that growth to continue. Um, but we are aware that if you see mass fiscal stimulus or a, you know, a considered pullback in markets, that that creates a much better backdrop for value. You know, so we can monitor and change that. Eric, how do the secular changes that we've been discussing, what sort of impact are they having on the small and mid-cap part of the market in the in the US? You know, the, the conversation today has broadly been about mega-cap technology stocks, but further down the further down the cap scale, what what's happening and what's your exposure like down there? Yeah, I, I think I think uh, historically there has been more innovation and um, uh, more innovation as you go down cap, right? And and some of that is just, you know, the law of large numbers, right? It's difficult to continually reinvent or, or invent a new product line that really moves the needle of a hundred, two hundred, three hundred billion dollar company, right? So I think I think, you know, for, for much of history you've seen more innovation occur in smaller companies. That hasn't really been the case over the last several years. We we've seen exceptionally strong performance and innovation and disruption from these these large large cap uh, companies in in the U.S. Uh, that said, we do absolutely uh, have a number of names that are are benefiting from the way that different sectors and industries are are evolving. Whether that's you know electronic payments, right, or that's biotech companies. Um, you know, many of these these you know rapidly growing disruptive companies are are smaller cap earlier stage companies. And and one of the benefits I think of 
of, of having exposure to the smaller end of the market is is just for that reason. Uh, Julian, as a as a, a growth investor, I, I guess to some extent, small and mid cap is is part of your natural hunting ground. Um, what what's your exposure like like down there? Uh, well, I guess that the the strategies I'm involved in are large cap growth companies. Okay. Um, but I think at T Road Price, we we invest across the entire spectrum. So from from small, mid through to large, um, from value uh, you know through in, into growth. Uh, we also invest privately as well. So I think we have it, it's it'll be highly unlikely that we come across a company we, we haven't really ever heard of before. Um, when when I think about how we invest in U.S. large cap growth. Uh, I think we're finding a lot of interesting ideas for us in sort of the mid-cap space, but I, I guess mid-cap for us is possibly a bit larger than mid-cap for outside of the U.S. You know, when we look at companies in the sort of you know, 15 to $20 billion, kind of, that for us looks like more mid-cap. Um, we're actually finding some really interesting opportunities in that space. And, and the benefit I think you get from us looking at those companies is they're actually very well known by the guys at Tiro who covered those companies when they were small cap companies as they as they go on their journey and they become more successful, they get larger uh, and they then come onto our radar. So so if a company comes onto our radar as like a $20 billion company, uh, CoStar is a name that that Eric and I um, you know, both are interested in. Started out as a small cap investment um, and then uh, yeah, it became a very successful large cap, larger cap investment for us, and that's like twenty billion dollar range. Thank you, uh, Nathan. Just to just to uh, f- finish up on that point, um, when you're looking at U.S. exposure, do you um, how do you do mid and small, and to what extent do you do mid and small cap? I guess. Mm. Yeah. So we obviously have a preference for large cap at the moment, and uh, when we allocate to mid and small, it tends to be a tactical position or a satellite position within portfolios. If we look at performance uh, over time and more recently, you know, large cap has dominated. A lot of that is probably driven by very large, attractive technology companies which are attracting talent. You know, people want to work for Facebook. They want to work for Google. And also, I think another dynamic is that if you look at a lot of companies, small startups, they tend to start off privately. And, you know, they're grown over time before they come to the market. And we've seen a lot of instances of that, whether you think of companies like Uber, etc. But, you know, you have to remember that small companies are innovative and over time have created, you know, stellar returns relative to large cap. But I just think more recently, the market has been very focused on these big tech companies and it's, it's really five or six companies okay. which are driving that growth. Okay, that's great. Thank you, Nathan. And uh, thank you to my guests for joining me today and to you for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of the FT Advisor podcast. Goodbye.